church. Welcome to yet another online worship gathering. And uh, I pray and hope that you are still being enriched in the Lord and, and just uh, enjoying what little fellowship you get. But this format is, uh, is where we're stuck right now. Let me just give you a little bit of a heads up for the next couple of weeks. Um, this week and next week, next week being Mother's Day, we're going to do an online format both obviously today and next Sunday. The following Sunday, so that would be May the 17th, I think, uh, that following Sunday, we are going to try our very best to gather in some form or another. We're either going to gather in this room uh, for worship, obviously with some social distancing type protocol if the governor allows, or we're going to gather in our parking lot with like a drive-in type of worship service. We just feel like uh, it's important for us to get together again, to, to set aside this time uh, and devote that time to Jesus together corporately. So um, this Sunday and next Sunday, obviously, is online. And then the following week, we're going to try to gather in some way or another. So be looking for information about that. All right, let's jump in with the book of Acts. We started last week uh, in the book of Acts, and we're going to continue this series this morning with Acts chapter 1, looking at the, the last half of uh, Acts chapter 1. So um, just to recap, as you're finding your place in God's word, Luke is writing to uh, someone named Theophilus. Uh, that name Theophilus, there's a lot of mystery about who he was, but more than likely he was uh, some kind of Roman official who's given a new name upon believing in Christ, that new name being Theophilus. That name means lover or friend of God. All right, so Theophilus, and this is Luke's second book to write to him. He wrote Luke, and now he writes volume two, Acts. In his gospel, Luke writes about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And in Acts, he's gonna write about all that Jesus continues to do through his apostles, through his church. He's writing about Jesus to be continued. So make no mistake, the main character of the book of Acts is still Jesus. It's still all about Jesus. It's just how Jesus is working through his church by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're looking at in the book of Acts. It tells the story of the birth of the church and the spread of the gospel. So uh, this book... Just so you know, it spans uh, about 30 years of time from A.D. 30 to about A.D. 63. And it covers the spread of the gospel from about 120 people in Jerusalem to hundreds of thousands of people all over the known world. Get that. Like we went from a small cluster of people that could easily fit in this room to hundreds of thousands of people by the end of this book. It's miraculous what the Holy Spirit is doing through his people, through his church. Now today, Christianity is still spreading. It's still growing and going to the, the corners of the globe. And right now, the estimates are that two and a half billion people have trusted in Christ and put their faith in him. Two and a half billion out of eight billion people are believers in Jesus. But there's still a lot of our world that don't know Christ. That's the reason we do what we do. We, we are still 
the mission of God to reaching the world. So with that in mind, when we read the book of Acts, we're looking at ground zero for uh, ground zero of a world shaping movement. This was the start of something huge. It's something we're still a part of today. This history of the early church is our history. You know, sometimes people ask me uh, about Mountain View Church. They say, you know, how old is your church? And I usually just say, well, we're we're about 10 years old. Um, But now in my head, I'm thinking, yeah, we're about 2000 years old because our story connects directly to what we're reading in this book. Our story is this story. This story of history is our history. I just want us to think that way as we read this text. It's not just a a book we're looking back and reading a story. We're actually looking and reading about the origins of how all of this that we still love and care about, all of this, how it began. These first disciples who followed Jesus, um, they knew that he was the promised king and that they were his people. They considered themselves the king's people. And so that's sort of our theme, at least for now, as we're walking through the book of Acts is kingdom people. The title is we are kingdom people. It comes from this idea that we are people of a king and we're building his kingdom. These first disciples were anxious for him to establish his kingdom. The last time we we talked, we, we saw that the kingdom people are empowered by the Holy Spirit to bear witness about their king. So as Jesus has gathered his disciples together, he gives them one great mission. He says, uh, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. So it's Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So he's called them to be his witnesses And he's given them the power to accomplish that task. While he's speaking, though, like get the imagery while he's speaking, he just sort of ascends up into heaven. The Bible says that he's carried away in the clouds. I was talking to my children about this this week, and they were just like, he like floated off on a cloud. I was like, well, yeah, sort of, (laughs) I guess. Uh, I don't even know. I can't my mind can't imagine what it looks like, but I'm. It's understandable when we read the scriptures that the disciples were just like staring into the sky and angels had to come and sort of nudge them to get moving. Hey, guys, no, there's no need staring up into the sky. He's going to come back just like he went. Now, let's let's go get busy with what he left us to do. So Jesus told them he gave them instructions specifically for their very next step. And that was I want you to. Wait. I don't know about you, but that's one of the hardest things in my life to do is to wait. I, I know for my children that is a seemingly an impossible task. But Jesus told his disciples, I want you to wait in Jerusalem until the promised Holy Spirit comes. Then you'll be my witnesses. I don't want to preach last week's message, but I just want to say this. That should tell us. How important the Holy Spirit is to our mission. Jesus said, I don't want you to go ahead. I want you to be empowered for this mission. So wait. Don't get ahead of me. I want you to wait. If you wait, I'll empower you to do what I'm calling you to do. 
So here they are waiting. Let's take a look at the scriptures and see what they did while they waited. So let's pick it up in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. And uh, wherever you are, would you join me in standing in honor of God's word? Acts chapter 1, beginning verse 12. The scripture says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was, in all, about 120. And Peter said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now, this man acquired a field with a reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, quote, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and Let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us, Peter says this, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Lord, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Lord Jesus, this is your word. We trust it. We look to it now um, for hope, for direction, and for certainty about who our God is that we can trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated on the couch or on wherever you are. Uh, So settle back in. Um, all right, what I want to tell you is uh, from this text, what we're going to see is three, uh, three attributes, three things about kingdom people that I believe the scriptures want to teach us that these guys are learning right out the gate of what it means to follow their king. So I want to give you three, three things about kingdom people. The first one is this. Kingdom people are united in and devoted to prayer. 
Kingdom people are united in and devoted to prayer. When you look at verse 14, as they've all gathered together, we have a, the list of who's there. You know, it starts with Peter and it goes down the list. Uh, Judas Iscariot obviously is missing uh, from the list, but they gather together. And verse 14 says, and these all with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. I think about this phrase with one accord and I think about what that must mean, that there's, they're gathered with one accord. These disciples, these followers of Jesus were not always this united. I don't know if you remember, but they had many arguments about who would be the greatest and who would be the least and whose fault it was and this or that. And I, I think specifically about all the different things that could have um, put them against each other. You know, Jesus' family are here. His mother and his brothers are here. And maybe they're thinking they have a place of prominence because they're related to Jesus, blood relation. Well, that didn't cause a problem. Or maybe John may have claimed that he should have a place of prominence because he's the one that at the foot of the cross, Jesus said, John, I want you to care for my mother. And he might think he's something special. Or they could have been angry about the betrayal of Jesus and been pointing fingers about whose fault it was as, as to why that was allowed and somebody didn't intervene. There's a lot of things that could have uh, caused disruption and discord and problems, but that wasn't the case. And I want to tell you, I think it's because they had a singular affection. You know, they had just been gathered with Jesus. Listen to a resurrected Christ. Give them not only a commission, but the promise of power of his spirit. And then they watched him float up into the heavens. Right. So they had a singular affection that drove them to intimate prayer. They were united, not just in some kind of um, project that they're given to do. You know, people. People uh, who don't like each other can get along long enough to accomplish a task. But these people are not devoted to one another and they're not with one accord because of a common task, but because of a common love. They were united in heart and mind. It's an internal unity. You know, often when I'm, when I'm doing marriage counseling with, uh, with a couple that's struggling, one of, the, one of the questions that I like to ask is, um, tell me about how you pray together. It's insightful to, to see and to know how a couple, a husband and wife, how important is a singular affection that we share commonly? How important is that to be expressed together? And so I, I, I usually ask, tell me about your prayer life praying together. When do you do that? How often do you do that? What's it like? You know, there's a, there's a cliche, and it is just a cliche, but it's good. It is those who pray together stay together, right? Those who pray together stay together. The truth is, even though that's cheesy, it's true for marriages and it's true for churches as well. The people of God who pray together, it unites our hearts. These disciples, the Bible says they were devoted to prayer. I just want to park on that word devoted for a moment because I think we need to flesh out what it means. To be devoted to something means you deny other things. 
There's no other way of describing that. But to be devoted to prayer means that you deny yourself play or whatever else it may be. We live in a world today that is trying constantly to convince us that we can do many things at one time. And we just can't. It's a lie from the enemy that you can do a bunch of things well at the same time. We're not God. And he wants us to be singularly devoted to things like prayer. These disciples are devoted to prayer. You know, I can't be fully devoted to worshiping with the church family at 10 a.m. if I'm also, you know, playing out in the yard or fishing by the lake. Not that those things are bad things. But what I'm talking about is a singular devotion means denial of other things. So this matters so much that I'm going to not do those things. Devotion means consistently choosing the one thing over other things and persisting in it, even through highs and lows. That's what we see with these disciples. They are devoted to prayer. And we don't have a written record of what they prayed, but I can imagine their prayers to be so personal. They're praying in the name of the one that they had seen and loved and had meals with and walked with and talked with. I imagine they prayed much like Jesus taught them to pray, but very personally. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. They prayed for God's glory. Give us this day, Lord, our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, power, and glory forever. They prayed for God's glory. They prayed for their good. One thing we'll see throughout the book of Acts is we will see great emphasis on prayer. Great emphasis on prayer. Uh, I was doing some study this week. I noticed this. Prayer is mentioned in one form or another 10 times in Matthew's gospel, 12 times in Mark, five times in John. But Luke mentions prayer 19 times in his gospel and 32 times in Acts. Prayer is a significant theme. It's it's funny how uh, the book of Acts is meant to show us the power of God. But it doesn't do that apart from the prayer of God's people. And what we should connect is that God moves in power when his people get on their knees in prayer. A few examples throughout the book of Acts of God's people being devoted to prayer. In this chapter, they pray for guidance about decisions. You know, they need to replace Judas. And so they pray, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show us which one. You have chosen. They pray for guidance. They pray for courage to witness. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John had been arrested and now set free. And they gather back with the church. And, and the church is, they're all kind of scared. And they say, Lord, give us boldness. Help us to be courageous in the, in the face of suffering. Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, he prays in the midst of suffering. As he's being stoned, he prays, Father. Forgive them, right? There's prayers in the midst of suffering. They pray for miracles. I think about Acts chapter 9 when P- 
Peter goes into the, the, the room with the dead girl and he clears the room and the Bible says that he prayed and then he told that girl to get up and she did. They prayed for miracles. They prayed for uh, Peter's release from prison. He was in prison. This is kind of a funny story. In Acts chapter 12, the church is gathered and they're praying, oh God, set Peter free. And then there's a knock at the door and it's Peter and Rhoda goes and opens the door and She's startled that God has answered her prayer. She shuts the door and goes back to the room, leaves Peter standing outside. It's, it's so funny. But they pray and God moves. And then I'm reminded in Acts chapter 13, they pray and fast. And the Lord says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. They pray as they send missionaries. These are just a few examples. But what we see in the early church is a devotion to prayer. This is not a one time thing. This is the start and continuation of a primary focus for the people of God. Kingdom people are united in and devoted to prayer. In the last few days before Jesus' crucifixion, he taught them about the coming Holy Spirit and about prayer. He said these things in John's gospel. He said in John 16, until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. And in John 14, Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray when he's gone. He's teaching them how to pray in the Spirit in his name, with his authority. So Jesus called his church, his kingdom people to pray boldly in his name for the glory of the father. What we need to see is that prayer is not passive. It is humble and yet bold faith in action. Prayer remembers the source of power and reconnects to him. We are most powerful when we pray, kingdom people are united in and devoted to prayer. The second thing I want us to see from this text is that kingdom people submit to the authority of Scripture. Kingdom people submit to the authority of Scripture. Right out the gate, you know, you kind of get this picture of they're praying in the room, they're all praying together, and then Peter just stands up and he says, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled. And I love the prominent place of prayer and the prominent place of the scriptures. As they're waiting, that's, those are the two things that surface in the people of God. Prayer and scripture. And Peter stands and addresses these disciples with scripture. What we'll see throughout the book of Acts is that scripture matters. In almost every sermon preached in the book of Acts, they're going to reference the Old Testament scriptures and quote and talk about how Christ has fulfilled the scriptures of the Old Testament. The Old Testament scriptures cannot be dismissed. I want to make a bold point here because it doesn't matter what megachurch preacher tells you that we should unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. It's not true. The New Testament followers saw that um, the new covenant is 
is uh, concealed in the Old Testament. It's there and it's fulfilled in the New Testament. And so as we look through the lens of the Old Testament, we see beautiful fulfillment. As Christ came, Paul writes in the New Testament in 2 Timothy 3, he says that all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful. All Scripture. Jesus said to Satan as he was tempted, he said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So the New Testament scriptures had not been written yet, right? These are the people who are going to be writing the New Testament, the Gospels and Acts and Romans and Ephesians and Galatians and Philippians. These these men are going to write the scriptures. They've not been written. So they have the Old Testament to hold on to and to see the beauty of the fulfillment of the gospel. I also think about how in Luke 24, it says that the Lord Jesus had opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He had opened their minds. This passage blows my mind because it says the scripture had to be fulfilled. And listen to what it says about the scripture, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand. By the mouth of David concerning Judas. Now, let's just get the details here. Here's what here's what we're seeing is that God is validating his actions and guiding their actions in the A.D. 30s. So in around 33 A.D., he's guiding their actions by the writings of King David about a thousand years earlier. Isn't that crazy stuff? How God can use the scripture that was inspired by the Holy Spirit to both clarify his own actions and give us confidence for our actions. So let's talk for a moment about the Bible. You know, I've told you before, when when we gather together as as a people, I don't want to give you my opinions or thoughts. I want to preach this book because this is the living word of God. The Bible is a two edged sword. It both convicts and comforts. It cuts deep and it heals wounds. So what is the Bible? What's it about and how should we read it? I just want to cover this quickly. But I want you to listen in, okay? What is the Bible? From this text, here's what we see. The Holy Spirit spoke these words and men wrote the scripture. That's what Peter just said. The Holy Spirit spoke it. David wrote it. So the Holy Spirit spoke. Men wrote the scripture. Here's a crazy cool thing. The Bible has one author. 40 plus writers over the span of thousands of years telling one powerful story about one glorious Savior. That's the Bible. So what's it about? The scriptures are about Christ, even including his betrayal. What we read in this text, Peter says the scripture must be fulfilled that the Holy Spirit spoke through King David concerning Judas. So Peter's addressing the elephant in the room. Everybody in the room knows 
hey, we had 12, we're down a man. And he just killed himself. It was terrible. He betrayed our Lord Jesus. This is the elephant in the room and Peter addresses it head on. So the scriptures are about Christ, even including the subplots of his betrayal. The Bible gives clarity to what God has done. These are two things I want you to see. The Bible gives clarity to what God has done and it gives confidence for what God wants us to do. Gives clarity for what God has done, gives us confidence for what we should do. Think about it for a minute. King David, when he wrote Psalm 69 um, and Psalm 109 that are quoted here by Peter, he had been betrayed by some of his closest friends. So what Peter is doing as he remembers and reads and the Holy Spirit guides his interpretation is he's seeing that King David is a type of Christ. He's a type of Christ. And we would say that Jesus is the better king. But King David is a type of Christ and he was betrayed by his closest. And so the words that King David writes about his betrayer, Peter then takes and applies them to the one who betrayed the better king. And that's the way he has interpreted and implied these scriptures. King David's anguish and sense of betrayal points to a better king who would suffer an even greater betrayal and be left to die alone. Talking about how the scriptures all point to Christ. Think about for a moment the story of Abraham and Isaac on the mountain. God tells the father to kill the son of promise. How does that, that even make sense? It only makes sense when you see Jesus is the point of the story, right? The story of Abraham killing the son that he and uh, his wife had waited so many years to have. It, it doesn't make sense unless you see that Jesus is the son of promise. Jesus uh, is the ram who, had, who was caught in the thicket. Who Jesus wore the crown of thorns and died in our place so that we can live. That story points us to Christ as all the scriptures do. The scripture gives us clarity into what God has done. It also guides us and gives us confidence about what we are to do. You know, these disciples are looking to the scripture to help them make decisions. They chose to replace Judas because they believed the scripture informed that decision. They were convinced by these scriptures that this is what God wanted them to do to advance his mission. Now, we might could wonder why, why they feel like they needed to replace Judas. You know, uh, I don't know if you've ever wondered that, but I, I would suggest maybe because of these passages, but also because of what Jesus said. He told them in Luke 22 and Matthew 19 that they, the 12, would sit on 12 thrones and t judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And so maybe they felt the need that God wanted a fulfilled group of 12 based on the scripture, based on what Jesus himself had said. You know they felt compelled by it. After quoting the scripture, Peter says, um, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. That word must means he, they felt strongly compelled by the scriptures that this is the decision that needed to be made. So when we read the scripture, we discover God. We see his character. 
We learn and obey his commands and we experience his compassion. As kingdom people, we submit ourselves and our decisions to the authority of the scripture. Last thing, thirdly, kingdom people take confidence in a sovereign God. Kingdom people take confidence in a sovereign God. I look at these scriptures and I see some incredible things like the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand. And what he meant is a thousand years ago, the Holy Spirit already knew what was going to happen. He spoke beforehand concerning Judas, meaning concerning the fact that Jesus would be betrayed. And here's what we should know. God is not, he was not surprised by his betrayer. Remember, Jesus even foretold it in John 6. He had fed the thousands and then he said, eat my flesh, drink my blood. And then he said, you can't come to me unless the father draws you. And then in John 6, he says, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. And then in John 13, after washing all their feet, the text in this text, it's even clearer. Jesus says Judas's betrayal is, quote, that the scripture may be fulfilled. And I am telling you this now before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. So Jesus says, I'm telling you this so that you won't be shocked. So that you won't be surprised when I'm betrayed. And here's what, here's what the point is. The point is, our God is sovereignly in control of everything. Not even the, the, the betrayal and treason of one of his closest friends can get him off path. It's actually on his purpose. It's amazing how God, our God works. We can't understand it. We can't fathom it. But even the deepest Evil somehow fits into his sovereign plan. And you say, I don't know about that, Justin. I just, I just don't know about that. Well, look at the cross. <laughs> what deeper evil could there be? And yet God ordains that the sin of men fulfill his purpose of redemption. God is sovereignly in control and we should be comforted in his sovereignty, we should be comforted. Jesus comforts you today, and here's how he does it. He says this, I am in control. Uh, these last few weeks have been challenging for me. I didn't realize I was such a controller, but I am. Every time I turn around, I can't do the things I want to do. I, I just wanted to walk into Walmart and grab some bananas the other day, and I couldn't do it. I had to wait in a, in a line uh, a long line and um, get looked at funny because I wasn't wearing a mask. But uh, I, had, I wasn't in control. Somebody else was in control telling me what to do. I didn't, I didn't love it, to be honest. And there's a lot of things in my life that God shows me, I'm not, you're not in control. You're not in control. You're not in control. Here's the thing, though. He is sovereignly in control of all things. And we should rest and take comfort in that beautiful truth. These disciples, they make the decision to replace Judas, but they trusted in the Lord. Listen to what they said about his sovereignty. They say, you, Lord, who knows the hearts of all men, you 
Select the one. Show us the one. And then they say these three words that you have chosen. This is an admission of not only God's foreknowledge, but his his activity, his sovereign activity. And they're saying, Lord, we want to do what you have already chosen to do. We want to walk uh, in the flow of the wave of your sovereignty. So these disciples are confident in his control and we can rest. Jesus is rest for the weary and heavy laden. And he invites us to rest in his sovereign control. So those are the three points. I wanted you to get three truths from the text about kingdom people. Here are the, here are the takeaways. So listen to this one more time. Here's what we are to be. We are to be devoted to prayer. Prayer puts you in the right posture. Prayer builds unity. Prayer opens the eyes of your heart to receive from God. Listen to these quotes. Ian Bounds says, God shapes the world by prayer. Edwin Orr, history is silent about revivals that did not begin with prayer. I love this quote. It's anonymous, but it says, if you only pray when you're in trouble, you're in trouble. Kingdom people are devoted to prayer. Kingdom people are devoted to prayer. Let's be a people who are devoted, meaning we deny other things and commit to this one thing, devoted to prayer. Secondly, study and submit to God's word. As you open the scriptures, discover God. Grow in your love for him. Deepen your trust in him. Submit to the authority of scripture as the final word. Don't let your culture around you tell tell you what's right and wrong. Listen to God. He has the final say. So let's be a people who submit, who study and submit to God's word. And lastly, um, let's rest in God's sovereign control. You're not in control, and that's a good thing. God is at work advancing his kingdom in ways that we may never understand. But let's join him in resting in his sovereign control and join him in his mission to advance the gospel and the kingdom all around us. I can't tell you how excited I am about the book of Acts and our study here. Next week, we'll jump into chapter two and we'll see the spirit of God descend on the people of God. And what unfolds after that is just amazing. Right now, church, we're in a we're in a pattern, a place of waiting. And I want to encourage you in these things. While you wait. While you wait, pray Study and submit to the word and rest that God is in control.